That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. It's always had a bit of a Hollywood script to it. An abandoned chocolate factory turned into a thriving production line of controversial product, which might make one crave chocolate after consumption. The movie could be also a biopic of Bruce Linton's life, or at least the stage in his life when he built Canopy Growth, one of the biggest publicly traded cannabis companies in the world. Rewind less than a decade, and this wasn't an easy conversation to have around a boardroom table. Of course, there's a journey of several twisted forks in the road that led to this opportunity, scarier than most of us would be willing to venture on. But Bruce, a graduate of Carleton University, hopped on board, almost like a magic carpet. And wow, did he ever fly. He traveled and we marveled at what he was able to accomplish until some of the magic died. I'm not sure why I make the comparison of Bruce's entrepreneurship reign to an elite athlete, but I do. At the top of one's game, only to be traded or even worse, maybe sent down to the minors. But Bruce was fired not long ago from his post as CEO. But like any true champion, you find your way back to the top. And it seems Bruce has been very quick to rebound. This is going to be one wild ride, so buckle in. And welcome to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And of course, for more information, you can always head to extensionmarketing.com. Bruce, I'm really excited to have you here. Well, I'm glad uh, we bumped into each other socially and uh, you nabbed me. I did. I was like, this is a this is a perfect story. I think especially here in the city, we are so familiar with your name. But the more research I did, the more I was talking to people and looking at things, your name, it's it's on a world spectrum. I mean, we know it here in Ottawa, but this company, what you have done is is has made world headlines. Yeah, I don't... Um I don't think a lot of people in Canada realize part of the reason Canopy and Tweed and, and by default me as the, the sort of founder um, became global is because Canada has the best, most advanced way of looking at how to manage cannabis, how to create science outcomes. And so uh, when the Germans say, well, what should we do? Uh, they followed a lot of the Canadian practices and the first product came from Canopy. Uh, Denmark, same thing. If you go to Port, uh, Poland. Uh, products listed there for medical applications come from Canopy in Canada. And so by default of pushing it, you end up showing up and, and trying to influence these things. Last week I was in Jamaica and it was quite interesting. Before I left Canopy, um, I was the chairman of a Jamaican cannabis company. And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, I'm the keynote speaker at Jamaican cannabis conferences where um, part of what they need is to get over the topic that is cannabis and say, okay, now that we're going to regulate educate and monetize because that's what government should do. So they're not making it fun. Nobody wants to have fun. That's not what governments want us to do. But they don't want to see uh, these active ingredients left to the illicit market. They want them regulated. And once you think it through once or twice or five times, you can go to a place like Jamaica and you'd say, well, Jamaica probably has a lot of cannabis. They don't have that much of great quality and they have a great system now for a regulated market. And so I'm at this conference and I do my keynote presentation and um you know, this guy from Ottawa, Canada can actually give input that probably will change how economics work in their 14 parishes. So Jamaica is not Jamaica. Jamaica is made up of 14 kind of like provinces or states. And um, my pitch to the 
people listening, including government officials, was that rather than market Jamaica, rather than market Marley, they should make it so that um, their products are grown in each of the provinces, all 14, and that the people selling the products, what happens is you get off the ship in Jamaica, you go into a store, the dispensary, and there's a doctor or someone there who can certify that you're sick which means for the course of your vacation, you can have cannabis and the government gets taxes and it's regulated. And the reason they're doing it that way is if they made it recreational, they would upset America and they'd have a problem with banking. So they do it that way. And then what I propose is that when you go to those dispensaries, the spots where you'll buy the cannabis, that 25% of all the products sold had to come from in equal proportion, each of the 14 parishes. And that meant that the genetics had to be targeted to them. The product would be growing there so that the tourists who were largely, you know, you go to Jamaica and as a tourist, what you do is, you go into a resort and just stay there. You never leave. But what if they really like the product, say, from one of the parishes called Portland? What they might say is, how do I get to Portland? And so the person who's in that area that grew it would get 50% of the net profit of what's sold, so they'd make money. But the municipal area would make money because tourists would venture out and want to go see a tour of the growing platform. And the effect of this is that you get economic sprinklings through the whole country. And because of having started in Canada and having created Canopy, I had some credibility when expressing this, which really, um, I thought of it as sort of like, um, if everybody who's a past participant who's been punished in Jamaica got to be part of those parishes doing it, there's a certain amount of social justice, there's a certain amount of rebalancing, and there's a certain amount of just be smart, right? Make this a national thing, because it already, stereotypically, you say Jamaica, I say pot, right? reggae. Right. Um, so now manage that. So I would say, yeah, I think um, Canada, Canopy, and me are internationally known because we had the advantage of being the best first organized place. Well, that's interesting because you, you go on this story and all of a sudden I'm looking at, you know, international diplomacy and government mm -hmm. regulations and recreational and travel and tourism and you look at all of the industry and I realized at one point we were just talking beforehand you know I mentioned the word 14 billion and you said it well that's 20 billion Canadian when you look yeah. at what this company has been able to to be like on the market and the conversations that you're having mm. and you look back like you know less than a decade ago and you're sitting around a boardroom table being dismissed by bankers and oh, by yeah. companies going, you're insane. What yeah. are you talking about? Well, this topic is, um, it's accelerated so much, right? Like the public policy in Canada began in 2001, you know, they had a federal program for medical, but really they had no organized supply chain, meaning that the patients couldn't really get a regulated product. So um, it was really 2013 when it began. And so it was about, it was about sort of six years from the time the public policy hit till uh, I was out. And in that six year window, the company uh, was able to go from me walking around by myself to about 4,500 people. And from one location in Canada to 10 and from one country to 16. And from zero patents to over a hundred issued. And so I think um, that was a good startup phase, but for your world and for your listeners, um, I think what they're gonna be really interested in is what I would call Cannabis 3.0. So 1.0 was startup, grow some cannabis, ship it to people, they get it, it's consistent and safe. What's it do? Don't know. You decide. 2.0 is what starts in January of this year in Canada, where the products made are sophisticated for recreational consumers, and there won't be something in the illicit market equal. So the problem the illicit market will have is that they can't compete on price with something they don't have. 
And so it'll mean that people start going to the stores and, um, you know, um, I think they'll go to these stores for a bunch of reasons, different products, but, uh, what's going to start happening is places like New Brunswick and Newfoundland are going to start having coffee shops in the morning and cannabis consumption shops in the afternoon. And the place won't allow you to smoke because you can't smoke anywhere in Canada. I'm not really sure why we sell cigarettes. There's nowhere to smoke. Um, but they'll be able to have a beverage with cannabis in it. And it'll become a social platform where people interact, talk about art, talk about their interests. Um, but it won't have the problem of the drunk loud guy. It will have a, a totally different social environment. And nobody's going to... vibe. Yeah, and it'll have a vibe. And guess what? You're going to like them because you'll have... It's still allow you to have fun and you will absorb zero incremental calories. So like, that sounds okay. Um, the other part you'll like about it is um, there's a very low drug-on-drug -drug interaction, unlike alcohol. And I think the final thing is that um, they're not dehydration. They're not... So you're talking about the morning after that horrible yeah. hangover that yeah. uh, some so, of us so you're not experience? Gonna have, let's see. You're not going to have a hangover. You're not going to be fatter. And if you're taking other pharmaceutical products, they should be fine. And so I think that will mean the cohort of people who can actually go and socialize with these beverages in these places that start doing it are pretty interesting people. And uh, I think they're going to be a little older than when you go to the bar. Mm. And so I think um, it's going to change society because you change the ingredients and then you change the regulation and all of a sudden, um, you know, who the hell wants to buy a coffee at two in the afternoon unless you want to be still doing stuff at 12. Um, so I think it's just going to be very interesting and, and, and uh, all led by Canada. What was the 3.0 version? So 3.0 is when um, someone who's, say, um, suffering social anxiety, uh, they have a sleep problem, they can't fall asleep or they can't stay asleep. Um, they have um, diminished mobility. They have Parkinson's and they can't cure Parkinson's, but they want the patient to feel better in the morning, less anxious through the day and sleep better. So 3.0 is when the clinical trials, phase 2B, which means a type of trial, uh, capture enough data to say this combination of ingredients delivered in this way results in seven hours of this type of quality of sleep or this type of ingredient brought this way through an inhalation platform means that the person with Parkinson's in the morning can get to their maximum mobility in a third of the time they would have had if they took other pharmaceutical products or other things of that nature. So 3.0 is when people will be able to say, and maybe other ingredients involved, they'll be able to say, this is what's working for me to feel better. And 4.0 is if it happens when you start to use cannabinoids as curative substances. And that's way out there, but um, if you take a little tray of stem cells and you have them interact with cannabinoids, it appears that you cause them to behave differently, to respond differently. And so if over time the curative outcome happens, I think it's going to be at a very basic level and we'll start focusing on things like maybe tumors. Um, but, you know, you got to think about five or ten years out if you actually want to have a future. And I, I think 4.0 is people should be sprinkling money into other curative attributes when used in certain delivery mechanisms with or without other medications. And I think that'll be quite a, a curious thing to understand. I think it's it's interesting for people to have these conversations because we're still looking at it from two, I feel, different perspectives. One is the recreational side. One is the medical side. I know mm. with canopy growth, there was the spectrum aspect and really looking at the medicinal way. And, and I don't know what the proper conversation is as to how you open the conversation for a lot of people, but they're, but it's part of the conversation now, especially with mm -hmm. demographics that I don't think we're looking at consuming 
weed or, yeah. you know, marijuana in, in other forms, but are saying, I'm in pain. I'm going to try the CBD oil or yeah. I do have the anxiety. This is, you know, a sprinkle has, they're seeing benefits. And so it's opening up a dialogue to people, I think, who weren't talking about it before. Yeah, I, I think the only people in Canada, there's only one group who should not like cannabis being regulated by the government. Everyone else, like the almost all the population except for a small group is the criminals who currently make all the money by the illicit market. Everyone else should like the regulation of cannabis. You, you don't have to buy any, but you shouldn't want the illicit market to make it. And then they should say, um, I want the government to sponsor science because if we're going to regulate it, we need to know what it does. How can you educate people if you don't know what it does? And I think um, I have yet to meet anybody who thought they were opposed to cannabis regulation, opposed to cannabis, never want to buy it, who after the period of a very brief conversation hadn't changed their mind. And all I have to say is, well... Um, but that's what you've been doing, Bruce. You've been yeah. doing, you've been changing people's minds from the day you started to canvas and to go out and speak to businesses yeah. about getting this company going. Well, what you see is in every country, the same stupid thing occurs. Um, sick patients, typically a child, often with some form of uh, seizure, end up having to fight in the media with the governing authority. Doesn't matter if it's England, Australia, they have to fight in order to get access to something that diminishes their symptoms. And I can tell you, if you're an elected person and you fight with sick people in the media for extended period of times, you don't win the next election. It, it just looks like you're heartless. And so um, it's becoming even more heartless as you see 30 plus countries governing this in a way that's actually intended to give reasonable access. And the reason Canada started in 2001 was not that a politician said this is a good idea. A court said there are medicinal benefits from this plant. And we have a charter of rights that says you cannot withhold medicines from Canadians that would benefit them. So quit doing it. And they had to quit because when the court tells you, the reality is, is you have to obey. And I think it was a generally bad day uh, for people at Health Canada and, and the government because they then didn't know what to do. And they took a path that took them more than a decade to arrive at a, a reasonable platform and they're still working on it. But um, the potential of this thing, like everybody talks about CBD and THC which are funny things. Like it's like walking up to your pharmacist and saying, these are the ingredients I would like you to use to make me feel better. No one does that. What they do is they see their doctor or their pharmacist and they describe their ailment and someone with some knowledge puts together a combination of ingredients that diminishes the symptoms or relieves the issue. Uh, in cannabis, people still feel like they're experts. They all want to say CBD, THC. Uh, those are two of 140 ingredients inside the plant. Um, Just two out of 140. Right. And, um, People say, well, it's CBD. It doesn't make have a psychoactive effect. Well, it does. What it doesn't do is make you have a high in terms of having a, a different perception in terms of that kind of high. But the reason Like an altered state. Right. So, but CBD affects your brain. If it diminishes anxiety, that has had a psychoactive effect because you're not anxious in your toe, right? You're anxious in your brain. And um, people say, well, it's only CBD. If you actually do a drug-on-drug -drug profile, which is where you take... CBD, you put in these petri dishes and you see whether or not it interacts with a variety of other drugs. I think most people will conclude that CBD actually is a bit more frisky, has a lot more action with other drugs than THC. THC is the one which causes the, the high, the you know, changed psychoactive state. Um, it actually has less drug on drug. And if people want to sleep, they'll find that CBD doesn't actually make them sleep. Maybe they think it makes them sleep, but it doesn't. They have to have combinations of THC and CBD to get there. And so what's going to happen over time is people are going to start getting to the point where they say, you know what, like 
benzodiazepines and sleep aids of that nature are pretty horrible, right? They have a diminishing return over time. You have to take more and more. Um, they don't result in a great sleep. And so people are going to start to say, well, maybe I should try that. And once they do try it, the combination is scientifically tested. I think the big losers are people who make Ambien, as an example. Um, and so I think that this whole um, how does it work is changing. And so part of the reason I got involved in other another company now that's involved with psychoactives, you know, you say, oh, my God, Bruce, what the heck? You're a drug dealer like cannabis. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about Ibogaine and LSD and ketamine and all these things. Well, um, I think anybody who bans anything without a good reason and good knowledge is probably prejudiced and prejudice doesn't often arise out of super smart people. And so a lot of these things have experienced prejudice without the fact base of why. And so there's probably massive therapeutic, if, if something could help diminish suicidal thoughts, would you be in favor of it? Yes. Well, what if it's currently prohibited? Well, if you run it therapeutically, you'd still say yes. What if this could help people with um, addictions to things, get them off better than anything else? Would you be in favor of that? Yes. Well, what if it's currently prohibited? Well, still try it. So if you use the logic of can I help society in a governed way, most people say yes. But if you say, hey, do you want to have a party with LSD? Not as many people in favor of that. And so I think there's just going to be a whole management of policy and perception that captures a whole bunch of things. I'm not saying there's going to be an LSD party. There shouldn't be. But therapeutically, why are we banning it? Why are we banning, you know, all of these sort of category products that if, if in the right dosage in the right care environment actually cause people to have a positively altered state without a repercussion equivalent to the other pharmaceuticals? I think we're in favor you have the research, you have the understanding behind you. Like you, you've, you've educated yourself on knowing, I didn't even know there was two out of 140 ingredients, yeah. right? There's, yeah. there's a difference as to what we've been exposed to yeah. and what's actually being done. Yeah. And you know, if you're ever going to be an investor, you should never invest where there's symmetrical information between you and everyone else. Cause you just can't win, right? If everybody knows all the same stuff at the same time, mm -hmm. then there's no chance you're actually going to have any advantage. But if there's asymmetrical information where perception is negative and facts may not be, then you should go do that. And so I look at these things as um, I'm not for or against them, but I'm curious enough to want to see if there's a way to turn them into something. And most people's bias keeps them away. Like if I walked up to you and said, you know, I have a really terrific business and we're going to be uh, using a lot of special K, that's the street name for K, and we're going to have a lot of LSD and stuff. 99% of institutional investors and retail people will say no. But if you walked up to them and said, we might in fact be able to invert um, certain medical outcomes that could be managed uh, clinically better. Uh, back to the you know depression, PTSD. All the. Would you like to invest in that? Do you think there's a big addiction problem if we have a solution? You say yeah. So it's how do you position these things in your own mind before the bias takes over? Is that what where the pivot came years back when you had to actually convince banks and board members and people to to get on board initially yeah. with Canopy? This podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They're a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally, as I've been using the extension marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. I, I was... Um... When I started what was called Tweet at the time, um, I almost did it on a whim, right? Like I was like, 
Why not? Um, well, I read a quote somewhere that you like taking on things that could be disastrous. Well, I think that, that it's almost, you know, like there has to be a, a massive consequence for you to put the risk and for you to put your energy, I'm thinking, towards something to make yeah, successful. Well, I just, I think it's, it, it causes you to be motivated, right? Like, um, in this city, there's one person who's outrageous in doing this and a lot of people get down on them. So we had a guy who tried to take a research heart from the Heart Institute and make it so you could have an implanted heart instead of a heart that never needed to be cut out for like a decade. And it kind of worked, but it didn't wholly work. It was called, you know, Rod Bryden's whole process in that one. And people are like, oh, that didn't work. You shouldn't, as if you shouldn't try it. I, I think it's actually, why would you try something that like is like, um, making version 16 is something that exists. Isn't it more interesting to make something kind of outlandish? So I was attracted to Rod because of his pursuit of outlandish things. And like his idea of, um, hmm, let's, we're not going to put garbage in a big pile and make a hill out of it. We're going to put garbage into technology and deconstruct it all and turn all of those uh, BTUs, the, the energy units inside the garbage into gas. And we're going to separate each of the types of gas and we're going to remix them together, make our own propane. And we're going to run generators and the garbage will disappear and we'll make more electricity than we used making it disappear. That is a, like, if logically it should, it's a great idea, but no one thinks it's a good idea. And they, they got that thing to work. Didn't work all the time. So was Plasco a total success? No, but did it massively move the needle on science? So I would prefer to be involved with things that are that way and, and think about it because, um, Otherwise, you have to really be a historian and involve closely with the prior thing. I'm not really no. diligent that way. I don't want to do that. No, you just move the needle. Well, I would sooner just look at it and say, like, I, I was very surprised with cannabis, and I've been very, very surprised with psychedelics, how so many people are sure that it's a bad idea, but they don't know why. That should be like a massive calling to do something like, this is a really bad idea. I hate it. Well, why? What's just a bad idea? I think that's obvious. Like that line of logic, which is not logic, exists in many places. And I just, um, I think it's more interesting to find those pockets. Were you always the type of person, the kid that always asked why? Like parents said, you know, we need to get this. Were you mm. going why? I know you grew up on a farm. So was it, you got to go do these tours? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I ripped everything apart to try figuring everything mm -hmm. out. But I, I think um, probably like most people who will listen to your stuff, um, you spend a lot of your early life trying to figure out um, why can't I do that? Why shouldn't I do that? And trying to comply. And then you get to a certain point in time where you don't feel like complying anymore and you do what the heck you want to do. And so for me, some of my early business endeavors were, okay, some were failures, some were successes, moderate. Um, but I spent a lot of the time trying to make um, what I think if I drew a picture of some of them, it would look like a platypus. Like, I've always loved the platypus. I think I did at least two speeches in public school on the platypus. And um, it's because if you take all these weird inputs and assemble them, you get a platypus. And in business, that means you have a really slow moving, got to be isolated, can't possibly pr survive in the real world on a highly competitive basis because you got this freaking mixture of weird stuff. And so a lot of my early business attempts were oh, well, this person's very experienced, I should listen to them and do that part. And that person's very experienced, and I do that part. Rather than saying, I'll listen to them, but if I disagree, I'm not including it. And um, so now, like, I don't, um, I listen to a lot more people, but I don't include most of the things they say. You mentioned something as, as you were talking, and it made me think of one of the stories 
and, and I did a lot of reading before you sat in this chair, but I appreciated. And at Carleton University, you became president. You were president of the Student Association, which especially at university, it's no longer a popularity contest. You were, get, you were getting shit done. Yeah. But I, I love the fact that Terry Matthews was a board member. Yeah. And there was the... There was you mentioning that you rearranged <laughs> that you rearranged the names on uh, as to where people were sitting so that you had an opportunity to sit next to them. I think for any yeah. young entrepreneur, any young kid out there looking to make a difference, figure it out. You yeah. you figured out how to have that conversation. But and it wasn't that I was pursuing Terry because I knew what he did. It was really weird. So I, I took six years to do a four year degree. I have no clue why people are in such a rush. Right. Like I had to explain. Was it, was it intended? You, no, I just, you just weren't in I, rush. No, you're not in rush. Like you, you have to explain to your parents over and over again that it's an education, not a race. Um, and that um, I don't understand what the big rush is. Like you end up working for a long time. I don't understand why anyone would possibly want to start working before they're 25. I, like it's insane. Especially if like if. If 40, do you feel that way with your children? For sure. I was like telling them, do not go to call, like take a gap year. And regrettably. The eldest one got into a program that was sort of prestigious and he refused to waive it. I'm like, who cares? You get in again. Take a gap year. Take time. Do it. Like, um, if you think about it, if if 40 is the new 30, that means the 30 is the new, what, 15? So, like, what's the hurry to get out there? I don't get it. So, Terry, when I was on one of my things, I was on the Board of Governors with him. Board of Governors was essentially the community governance people for the operation of the university budgets, et cetera. And I always felt like after I did it for two years and I didn't know what Terry did, but I knew you could just tell that he actually liked students. Now, you would think that anybody that would go on the board of governors of a university would like students, but it was not. I wouldn't think everyone does. No, I would say at least half of them. Some of them are prestige. Some of them are resume. I don't know. But like half of them, uh, I always got the impression as a student that their view would be there would be a lot less problems with the university if it weren't for all the students. If you think about it, that is a bit of a problem. Like, why do they have a homecoming party and why are we getting all these complaints? Because they're students. <laughs> like, um, and so Terry, Terry would, um, and still to this day, I have never met an entrepreneur who, in tech who has more regard and more interest in constantly bringing students in. He's amazing. Um, I don't think he's still doing it, but like he almost turned his house into like student housing for people who were from outside of the community who would work in his companies and, and, and reside and take up space in his place. Like he does everything he could to get students into businesses and, and have them stay and grow and work with it. And like when you look around, Terry, there are people now who were students, but like 30 years ago or more, who are still working in his network of companies. And so I moved to sit near him because I was a student and I had no clue what he actually did. Just read the people, enjoy it. Like um, one of the things I'm not, there's a certain amount of me that's good at emotional intelligence and there's a certain amount of me that's extremely bad at it. Um, I did not understand um, empathy. That this, this word empathy, I don't think I understood what it meant until I was at least mid forties. That's a, that's a long time to Right. understand or appreciate that word. Right. But I did understand, um, I could see where people were going and I could see what was motivating them, but to actually be able to experience and take your, uh, feelings and have them 
become mine. Like if you were really particularly sad about a particular thing and really transfer to me, I didn't always get that. But I always understood what I could see if you were at something, kind of what was your agenda? Where were you really going with this? And so I think part of what is good to take your time and get involved with a lot of stuff is you don't get locked into one place, one model, one set of culture. And if you jump into a business and suppose you ended up at Uber and you worked at Uber for 10 years and you started that when you're 22, that culture will be the imprint on you. And it's not historically been a great culture. It's improved quite a lot under the new guy. So I think it's better that people do a bunch of things so that they actually generate or develop um, almost like cultural training by moving around. Mm. I was 20 years with the same company. Yeah. Well, look at you. You're a mess. <laughs> no, but I, it's amazing to see, you know, like, I, honestly, my mind was blown when I, I, I really learning now being out of it yeah. was in, so, I lived in a bubble and I had no idea that I was in a bubble until I wasn't in the bubble anymore. And it, to see the world and what was out there was astonishing to me. It was fascinating. It's and I, hard too though. Mm -hmm, it's, it's hard too, because there's, um, when you were where you were before, you knew you knew where the coffee was, or the pencils were, or the washroom, the who's in charge, how's this work, everything was you knew. Um, uh, I can see why people don't love change because change is hard. You know, it's um, when I left Canopy, I had forty five hundred people that I was being their leader, and I could tell that I had to sever forty five hundred connections. And you know, obviously they weren't all equal, but you feel that. And in your case. You had tens of thousands, I have no idea, but you had a lot of people who on a morning daily basis knew you and you stopped that. And for them, it would be something different and for you it was something different, but mm -hmm. it's, it will have a long tail with you compared to them. Because what my case is when you get a new CEO, then the people can attach them. When they get a new hostess or host, Absolutely. they can attach them. Um, you have to figure out who the hell you are. It's, it's amazing that you put it that way. It's, it's so true. I probably should have practiced it a little bit more. You've had you've had a little bit more practice at it than I have, and I think you've you've snuck into different environments. And I don't mean snuck into companies and stuff, but you've been able to maneuver yourself and have an energy and bring this experience with you to so many different levels of business without always knowing exactly. Like I'm, I don't think you knew all of the research that you know about cannabinoid and everything. Now you you've learned and you've been open to it. Yeah, listen, um, I don't think, um, I think when I graduated from Carleton, I, I used the phrase, I was a very enthusiastic generalist. I continue to be a very enthusiastic generalist, which means um, if I were expert in something, I could sit here and pontificate on it. As an enthusiastic generalist, what you have to do is go and absorb it, go participate. Um, and I found that there's tons and tons of money out there that has no clue what to do. There are a lot of really, really smart people who um, doesn't matter if it's in my software life, they can have like undergraduate from Waterloo or a master's, a PhD in computer programming. They can be brilliant at like creating, uh, you know, all kinds of mathematical structures, but they don't know the question to answer. What am I making for whom? And so if you can focus these things in, um, there's always an opportunity to be in charge. Because you could do that. You could well, figure out. I feel like you could figure out the why. Well, I, I so you just, left that out, and for me, the why is a big uh, is a big component to it. I I think so, but um, I grew up on a farm. We had a big garden. I said I'm never having a garden when I grow up. Now I have a garden, but I don't really do the garden. 
And I think the way I do the garden is very similar to the way I do businesses. What it is is I partitioned an area, put a little fence around it, put a bunch of soil in it, rototilled it and said, now you guys can all plant it. And so Heather and the boys had to plant it every year, but I made the garden. So did I actually make the garden? No. But I would say that I initiated the environment in which a garden was created. It was the foundation. Right. And so I do that every time in business. Um, and then people say, what a great garden. And I say, yeah, I made it. Um, but no, I don't take all the credit. But I'm saying I think that is the um, the way I participate in creating things is to create an environment in which they can occur. But I don't make them occur. But you have built some amazing foundations. And yeah, yeah. Some uniquely strong foundations that most people don't even get that far. And not only were you able to do that with, with, with canopy growth, like tweed into canopy, but with the technology company with Martello, you're doing it with Ruckify. You're building, you're getting in as it's uh, when the foundation needs to be laid. Yeah, I, I think it's much And letting easier. everybody else plant what it is that they'd like to put in there. Yeah, I don't understand why anybody's unhappy about getting older. It's easier to do all these things the more you've done. And so like Ruckify um, started out of an extremely obvious circumstance but now as like as of Friday, this thing's we just raised about seven and a half million bucks so we can keep going. What it simply does is it's really bad for the environment in the world if we all own everything, even if we need to use it. Can't we find a way to share it? So, for example, um, you have holidays coming. You may have guests to your place tonight. You know, there may be fasting and then tomorrow there may be another meal. Do you need a mix master? Maybe. Do you need to own it for the rest of the year? For sure not. Um do you need now that the leaves and the acorns are falling to clean your eaves trough? Yep, got to do that. Do you need a ladder? Yep. Do you need to own a ladder? No. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. You know, you keep working out eventually. I hope you don't get it, but you'll have an injury. When you have an injury, do you need a brace? Yep. Then do you need a treadmill at your house for recovery if you didn't already own one? Yep. Do you want to own a brace and a treadmill for that circumstance? Nope. Just need to use it. So the whole point of it is that... Um, there's a global inventory of things that are all local that can be delivered to your house with Uber or Lyft that you need for a period of time and a purpose. And then you want Uber and Lyft to take them away and you don't want to own them, but you're happy to rent them. And you don't want to go through all the nonsense of going to places that rent this or that. You need to simply have access, use and get rid of it. And so Ruckify is all about how do we translate that into a software application that knows where you are, knows how much Uber will be, how to get it there and open it up in about 50 cities by the end of the year. So how much is the, how much is the technical programming side and That's how huge. much is the, the concept of selling and, and getting people in a network together? Because they're very two different sides well, of yeah. the business. And, and if you do one well and not the other, you're dead. Mm -hmm. So they both have to be done really well, um, which means you have to have uh, both parts of your brain working on it. One is about how do I create an inventory of things and there's a whole three-step process by which inventory is built from most costly to least costly. And then there's a whole technical thing about like, um, well, suppose you were getting something bigger than a Mixmaster. So a Mixmaster would fit terrifically in the back of an Uber. What if you needed a kayak that doesn't go in the back of an Uber? Um, what if it was really heavy? And I, I've, I've ruckified things like a um, small digger and a bobcat that for sure does not fit in an Uber. So you have to, in the technology platform, say, what is this and what category does it land in when you load the inventory so you know what way to have it delivered. And so these little things, as you think them through, matter a lot. Because if you send an Uber to pick up a small bobcat, that will be a waste of everyone's time. And so I would say it's technology and it is um, society execution. But if you do it right, um, 
I think environmentally, all the things that we have made for us that we seldom use are far worse for the environment than mostly the houses and cars we live in and transport with. Like, where did your power washer that's sitting in your garage used seldom come from? Bits and pieces from all over the world, digging holes and using petroleum-based products, fashioned in a coal electricity-driven facility in China, put on a ship, sent across the ocean, put in a cardboard box, brought to your store, sold to you, you drove it home in your car, and that occupies space, so you need a bigger house. On the surface, that sounds extraordinarily selfish and dumb. It is. Um, I have a beautiful power washer that we should network together because I have not yet used it this year. I use my ladder for about 10 minutes. My acorns are out of my eave trough. Might use it one more time this year, and then that ladder will sit on the wall for every day and every minute of the year. So there's something that makes a lot more sense, and that's Rockify. At what point do you tend to realize that it's working, that the two systems are going mm-hmm. to, are, are working and it's going to take off? Well, we spent the better part of several years and many millions of dollars, uh, 12 methods of trying to go to market to figure it out. And uh, once you figured it out, it was just the beginning of July and we knew we had it. But you can't be, um, where a lot of businesses fail is they conclude they're right, they put all their money onto that bet, and if they're wrong, they run out. What you have to do is actually do a bunch more patient tests and trials and methods, and the combined sum means that you actually figure it out. But um, I've never actually found that there's one thing you do that the way you began is the way you finish if you're successful. So you were incredibly successful. I know that there were some changes in in management, in ownership, and companies that were no longer in Canada but were worldwide. When you got in July, the yep. the can I say like the boot the terminated. because Said right terminated. because people tried to put it nicely. People yeah. tried to be like step down, and you were like hell no. <laughs> I was I was fired. Well, but be- I think you know stepping down all this stuff. It's almost like people. Like, unless you were caught stealing a lot of money or something, why are you embarrassed uh, when you leave a business, especially if you didn't want to leave? So I just, um, I don't understand that. So why would you not explain it? And then do it in a way that the company looks positive and you look positive. Um, So basically what happens is when you grow companies very rapidly, tech companies, startups, um, what you're fixated on is creating a team who are aligned. And you'll spend all the money you can get to create the infrastructure so that team can create great products and you can begin to acquire customers and show growth. And you don't worry about like how long is the building going to last, how do I amortize it. You don't worry like if you come to work, everybody came to work with us, I gave them stock equity, meaning they got a portion of the company at the price it was the day they arrived. And if we all worked really well together, it would go up. And that is, in my opinion, a very good thing. And that's how a lot of tech companies work. But what it creates is... Um, an accounting view that that's costly because the difference between the price I gave you the stock at and the price it is in the future in accounting worlds looks like a a liability. I don't think so. I think accounting is wrong. I think it should look like an asset because if if I gave you stock and you came to work with me and I hired you and you were dumb and the stock went down, that's not an asset. It's everything's wrong. And so what you'll find is um, companies that are growing aggressively that are oriented to sort of scale, um, have nothing in common with big old companies that make a lot of profit. Because what happens is when you run a big old company, it doesn't matter if it's pharmaceutical, tobacco, booze, whatever, they don't have any growth. They have almost a steady state business that gives them, if they sell $8 billion or something, they get a billion or two of profit. 
but next year they might sell 7.8 billion or 8.2 billion and they'll still get a profit where high growth companies I don't care if it's Amazon or a Google or a Shopify or a Canopy what they're trying to do is just keep ramming up in terms of revenue and taking over the world and so those um the way you govern and measure and all of these things are completely uh, mirror opposite and I now know that for sure but um I think it's not a it's never usually a personality thing or a, a big company little company thing it's usually accounting like if you looked at the whole world and said what causes uh most changes it comes down to accounting and accounting comes down to shareholder alignment and there are many different types of shareholders in the world some want like it never to go down it doesn't have to grow much some want things to double every year and so those shareholders have nothing in common and they all rely on accounting and the way the business is governed it allowed you to be able to tell people that you weren't retiring yeah. you weren't tired there's a ton of energy still to go and so i look at you and you're vibrant and you've got this energy about you and yet at the same time you've been raising two boys you're traveling the world i mean yeah. just even looking at your schedule I, I really like your your assistant by the way it's like trying <laughs> to like manage all this stuff like how how do you do it how does one because i'm often hearing now you know like you have the gary vanerjacks and it's like you're hustling and you're doing this but to enjoy life could you enjoy the life that you were building while it's happening like are you able to not take the meeting in new york or have to fly to london and have to do mm. things like where is where's <laughs> no, the I'm perspective very, on all of it i would say i'm uh, pretty bad at like that part so um one of my board members who's about 85 now who grew up in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, uh, which is not home of prosperity, uh, lives in Toronto, made himself, at times he's been a billionaire, so he's currently several hundreds of millions of bucks. Um, he said, Bruce, and he still comes to work every day. At 85. Yeah. Loves doing deals, works on stuff, thinks long term. I've talked to him at least twice a week. Uh, he said, the problem is if you, if you grew up without a ton of money and you had to hustle for your first buck, you have no clue what to do with money. Um, and so the reason my kids are good is my wife looked after them mainly. Um, we had a deal like, um, I knew, I didn't really know that I like kids. I like my own kids. I probably don't even know if I would like other people's kids much, but, um, she was really in charge. So for example, there was a very brief time where one of them was at daycare, but she agreed that she would stay home with him and stuff like that. And by doing these things, it meant that, um, I would come and go and be there. Um, but I was coming and going a lot, right? Like, um, and still am like I just looked at uh, Bonvoy is the merger of Marriott and Starwood and hotels. they have, yeah hotels and they have this application which tells you you know how many nights you've stayed and I'm lifetime their best view of a customer so they call that titanium for life meaning whenever I arrive they love me and they upgrade me to the best room they have and the reason they do that is I had 10 years where I never had less than uh, 50 stay 50 nights in their hotels 10 years and this year, somehow, um, because I got super busy trying to figure out what was next this summer and I was busy all the beginning of the year, uh, last week I stayed my 96th night at a hotel. And that is not a really good thing. But it's necessary if you're going to go places and see people and they're not in Ottawa. Okay, do you mind if I, if I go dig a little bit deeper? Would your, would your son say that? That, you know, that you're 
titanium membership is has the same value uh, of being out and about like I'm trying to yeah. find the balance because so many people are right. are racing they're in this race to do something or have more things or have more like did, I, did you is I there a balance I, or no no I would say that um over time I tried to learn how to be very present when present and I tried to always be back on weekends and and go stuff but like if you're going to try and build a global company, you should try not to live in Ottawa. And it's because how do you get from Ottawa to, say, L.A.? Well, you fly to Toronto. How do you get from Ottawa to, say, Madrid? Well, you fly to Toronto. Um, so right off the bat, you're going to have sometimes where you can't do that in the right time. So you end mm-hmm. up flying to yeah. Toronto, staying in a hotel at the airport in Toronto. Why? So you can get on a plane the next day early on to go to where you wanted to be. So now you've just had an extra flight and an extra overnight. Um, so one of my activities has been to push that, you know, we're the nation's capital. We're very happy. We have a million people now here. How about we have planes that go places that you want to go versus going to a place you don't need to go before you get to the place I've you want to go? I've even at my social dinners. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's in a, quite an absurd situation. Um, and so, no, I would say that um, probably I spent 20 plus years like a lunatic hamster and uh, just going to make things happen and now that things have happened um you're still i, I but i don't i don't uh i don't i don't know what um someone tried to get me to play golf this summer and i almost did um i don't really want to do that like i i so you don't feel like you're passing up on things that you wish you were doing okay so i come from a health and wellness and fitness mm-hmm. and take the time for self-care like do you have do you have self-care do you sit to five minutes to breathe and to meditate. Do you go and mm. keep your heart kind of going? So with all this pressure that it's going to be withstanding it and go for a run, like what have you mm. done? Like, have you given yourself any leeway? Well, I like going to uh, a class on Saturday at the good life and a class mm-hmm. on Sunday. And I like if I'm here, which I haven't been at all to play uh, hockey on Tuesday evenings, but um, I pace a lot. I walk a lot. Like I, when I'm on the phone where I'm doing everything, I'm going that way. But I think, um, now, I don't pacing, find stress. Do I don't you, f- wait, do you see pacing as just good physical activity or do you see it as an anxiety release of phone oh. calls and business calls that you're making while you're pacing I, I, on the phone? I find all of the above. I, I find that like um, when you're moving around, it's much easier to think. And if I ever I have one of those apps that tells me how many steps, it was always a lot of steps. But it, it's uh, sort of that stuff. But no, I think... Um, I always joke that uh, with the crew at Canopy, it was a very hardworking place. And uh, stress isn't often, it's often a perception thing, right? Like, oh my God, that we're so lucky. We have this island all to ourselves, possibly forever. This is going to be amazing. Or shit, I'm stuck on a deserted island. One's stressed out, one's not. And so I find stress uh, in business 100% not when you're going fast. It's when you're decelerating, when the phone stops ringing, when the cash account gets lower. That's stress. Stress is not growth. Um, like, I don't think there was any stress really in that. There was a, some pretty crazy times. Mm-hmm. But there were crazy times in the context of getting something quite interesting done. Like an exciting, like it's sure. an excitement. It's almost like you're about to go yeah. on this roller coaster. Yeah, is a roller coaster stressful? Well, no, it is if it's if all of a sudden you come over the hill and you realize, shit, the track fell down. There's no track. We're dead. That would be stress. But if it's just whoop, 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 that's fun. Um, so uh, I don't know. I don't think I had um, 
I don't think I had stress in creating it until we changed the board. And then you have stress because you're at odds with accounting. Um, but no, I think um, a lot of stress is perception. It's interesting, though. I think a lot of people wish that they could enjoy the roller coaster, knowing that the track is probably not going to fall off at the right. other side, right? And and to enjoy the ride, except how long there's sometimes there's... You never know. There's... Enjoy the crisis. I think crisis. people are, are scared of expiry dates. Yeah, enjoy the crisis. You have no clue when the next one's coming, right? It is, um, I, I don't, um, I, I don't, I think that's the only way you should be in business. Otherwise, you should not be, you should not be running a business if you don't enjoy the crisis. Hmm. Like, I, I quite like the fact that my phone largely only received problem calls. You know, people call you during the day to say, you know what, we told you we we're going to get done today. We got done. I'd be like, why the hell are you calling me? That's what you're supposed to do. What you want to have is when they call you say, well, you know what we're going to get done today? Didn't happen. And it didn't happen for like these five bad reasons. That's actually the point of the phone call. What a great tip for entrepreneurs and for business people. Um, if you don't like bad news, don't lead. Because eventually they won't bring you the bad news and you know why you die? Because you didn't know the bad news. Kills you. Leadership. Is that how... Yeah, I'm not I mean, because you, you know, you had some, you know, you talk about Terry Matthews, right? There's mentors, there's, there's yeah. people that you've looked up to. What do you consider to be under yours, the leadership? So I'm not a particularly excellent uh, manager. Uh, and I say that in that um, if you were working, suppose you directly reported to me, um, I'm supposed to give you an annual review. I'm supposed to sit with you for like an hour one day and go through a bunch of categories and discuss your performance against KPIs, these key performance indicators, I think that's all absolute nonsense. And the only reason we do it is because we all went to public school and we used to get report cards. And then you're, used to, you're supposed to bring a report card home every year, or every couple of months and all this nonsense. It should be super binary. You interact all the time and everybody knows exactly where you stand. And it's really clear that if um, I was interacting with you and I never wanted to give you any more stock equity because you're pissing off, you're incompetent, you're not doing the job, then I'm doing you a disservice by keeping you there because I'm never going to give you upside. So we should have a talk and you should leave. I think that is a more effective review process. And so I don't, um, I don't like doing that kind of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I understand the merits of it for a lot of places, but I think uh, that's almost a crutch for an absence of direct skill feedback. And so I feel like my job is I'm a leader and leaders are different than managers. Um, but if you have a whole bunch of managers and no leader, you have a problem. If you have a whole bunch of leaders and no manager, you have a bigger problem. You've been very good at figuring that out. It now, took a while. Right. Can you even count the amount of boards? I, I couldn't quite figure them all out. The yeah, boards, I mean, the charities. I mean, even the Nepean Skating Club. Who skated? <laughs> My Who skated? skated? Okay. But here's the problem with being an I entrepreneur. saw that. I'm like, there was a so, kid that skated. So I yes. had a kid skating. Yeah. And... Um, the thing was quite historically prestigious. It had achieved mm -hmm. quite a lot of things in the past, but it didn't appear likely to have much of a future. And the reason is that it had to automate, meaning make this thing easier to be a client. How do I sign up? How do we get coaches? And so sitting on the side rather than bitching, you say, well, I'll be president for a year. So I don't know. I think I was president for a couple of years and we made a lot of changes. And to the best of my knowledge, the place is operationally uh, sound at this time. Um, but it's like I became the chair of the public school parents council for like the grade seven, eight school, which was a complete like it was an insane use of my time. 
but I had this view that um, I didn't agree with uh, the interaction with the then principal and the parents being so collegial because I thought the person was doing a bad job. Um, like, I don't want an explanation of why it's okay to suck at math at that school going down. That it's because we let in, you know, we're more open to people. And so I'm like, no, the deal is if you're going to bring more people and you have to have tools to make them succeed, not an explanation why it sucked. And so like I spent a year and the bad part is I sucked in a couple other people to help me who ended up there for like three or four years. Um, so Bruce approaches you about being on a board now that you're going to be, yeah, and gonna I, be actually doing things. But those boards, frankly, I thought were more productive uses of time than many corporate boards. I don't like corporate boards. I think corporate boards have become a fashion show. And I think fashion shows and corporate governance uh, actually turn the board into a hierarchy. They're actually in a situation where as part-time people working maybe a, a day a quarter, uh, have authority above the entrepreneurs. Um, I don't get that for any growth company. The, the entrepreneurs should be in charge. They should be uh, supported and they should be fired if they turn out to be uh, dishonest or incompetent. And uh, the board only does one thing. It's make sure the right person's running it and if they're not, fire them. After that, they're a review authority, not a direction authority. And I've always thought that. Like I just... If you worked at a company one or two days a month, how could you be, even if you're an expert in the topic of last decade, I don't think you have any capacity to actually be a leader. And so I think this whole governance and board thing has become overdone. It's prestige. I know, but I do appreciate that you've joined on to boards and joined into things because you needed change changes to be made. Whereas yeah. most people would have just been like, oh, just let it go. It'll change next year or something else. Or our yeah. kids are going to be out of the system. Who cares? Our kids are done that school next year. Yeah. And, and that's and that's the difference between the doer and what you have created and done and mm -hmm. the rest of us who sit back and kind of go, I wish, and, and don't ever do anything like that. Well, it was embarrassing once because somebody at some place uh, for an award or a speech or something introduced me and they read everything from the time I was on student oh council. <laughs> I was like, there's some mental issue here. Cause like who, like, you know, it gets to be a very long list and it's not that I do it because, Oh, that will look good. It's you get involved because you got to get it done. Like I became president of the students association, not because I thought um, that would look good. I became president in part because when I was in first year, there was a guy with red hair who was this small guy and he was in the bar called Oliver's and he was clearly drunk and disruptive, but he didn't get thrown out. And I found out that he was the student union president. And I concluded that might be a good job for me. Um, and so through a progression of things, it turned out that I became the president. You know what I didn't do? I didn't get into the political part. What I thought was we should materially increase the budget we spend on all the first year students in their first week. Because I believe if you go to a place like a university and if in the first week you get fully engaged and connected I think you probably multiply the probability of that person concluding their time at the school and loving it. And it's all about um, that like old saying. Community. Yeah, but it's like that saying that if you have a great start, you're half done. And so uh, that was my big push. Okay. We spent a fortune on orientation. So where are you investing your big start right now on this, on this great start that you're yeah. going to have a long run? Because you've got a number of things on the go. Well, so I've... Um, uh, invested in and working with a company called MindMed. That's the psychedelics company. Um, I've invested in and I'm helping a company uh, called, uh, it's essentially the, the Better Dog Food Science. So it's BTTR Dog. And it's um, basically buying a whole bunch of companies which do direct-to-consumer uh, dog food products so that we can then overlay research, give uh, clinically established cannabinoid strategies incremental to a great business 
I invested in a thing called uh, Gauge Cannabis in Michigan because Michigan is um, a state in the U.S. that has currently regulated medical only. January 1st, it goes medical in rec. It's a big state with really good rules. So I think if a company can succeed and be very powerful there, I'll give them a great cash flow engine to go anywhere else in America or the world. So I'd like that one. Um, I invest in a thing called Slang, S-L-A-N-G, which... um, takes in the four quadrants of cannabis from medical to vape um, brands and product technologies and puts uh, those into the hands of entrepreneurs who are producing cannabis for sell-through so that if you're in one state, you can get the same thing in every other state. And so it gives a continuity of uh, a consistent product and a consistent technology. So I like that because I think over time, people are going to quit saying CBD and THC mm-hmm. and they're going to want outcomes and they want to know an outcome based on a package and a product name. So I'm involved with that. Um, involved now a little bit with um, a venture capital firm out of France um, because I think that 3.0 mm-hmm. and maybe 4.0 of cannabis are going to come from European researchers where they have better even access to uh, cannabinoids and uh, federal government work. So that's where I want to see that out of. Okay. So you just mentioned like, I think that was five or six. Yeah. How, how many things are landing on your desk? Oh, I've, I've looked at a couple hundred. Oh my God. Um, in fact, I was sitting outside your building talking to some nice people about their plans for hemp in America. And it was a good plan, but there, there, there are too many good plans that aren't sufficiently advanced to actually become businesses. I would sooner be involved with somebody that went forward, fell backwards a bit, and needs to go forward again. Because then you can actually um, be helpful. Because until someone falls backwards a bit, um, I don't think they really understand the challenges. And therefore, they don't know how to be uh, helped or have assistance. So I've got, I just looked at my my watch and I got to get you out of here in a couple of minutes. If you can, top three things, if you don't mind. Like if there was like Bruce's top three things you live by, do you think you could easily come up with a list for me? Um, a few. So I think um, part of the thing that's really important is if you're doing anything if we're going to work together, if I'm going to have an association with people, I have to have three things. Um, I can't give you energy. If you don't have energy, then there's no way we can collaborate. We can't do things. So I look for energy. Um, if you don't have integrity, I can't keep track of the money, the uh, details of everything. So like if you're actually trying to take before everybody makes, can't work with you. And uh, IQ, I don't need geniuses. And I understand that not everybody is one and there's an appropriate place for everybody to work. But if I'm actually going to try and collaborate and create value with somebody, they're going to have IQ. So if they've got energy, integrity, and IQ, and this is a list a guy named Michael Eachin had made and I agreed with and we went through and talked about in depth what they mean. Um, those are three things that I think for going forward, it doesn't matter uh, if you're going to have relationships with people, they have to have those three things. And a relationship can be a business, it can be your home life, but they got to have all those three things. Otherwise, how the heck do you work? Was there an author? Was there a book? Was there anything that triggered some nah. of this mindset? You know, what's really weird is I don't really, I read a lot of things, but they're usually legal documents as thick of things as The Economist. But um, I don't read books. I talk to people a lot. I ask them a lot of questions. And so, like, I, I, don't, I don't know when people read books. Like, I have no idea when you would read them. Uh, I don't find there's any period of time in the day where I'm going, man, I wish I had a book because I got like an hour and a half I want to read a book. So I really feel bad that I don't read them. I think the last book I might have read carefully uh, was A Prayer for Owen Meany. And I keep thinking maybe I'm Owen Meany. 
I'm thinking I'm going to call the hotel chain and then maybe when they see you check in, you have like a, a, be- a bedtime goodnight book for, for yeah, Bruce. But that'd be like 12 How words, <laughs> 12 words and sleep. <laughs> it depends on what product you took yeah, to help yeah, you no, actually I, sleep, which, which goes in with the, a number of the products. <laughs> I think you've done an amazing job. I'm, I'm in awe of, of the mindset of the vision that you carried. And I think the way you're inspiring a lot of other people to go about business. It's it's really quite fascinating. So people can find your latest projects. I know Rockify is the big one. Uh, well, Congratulations. I, I have a yeah. website called BruceLinton.com. It's not super hard. Um, where I'm trying to keep people signed up and put the projects that I'm working on so people can dig into them and see if they like them. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. So there's that's what comes with kind of being behind the brand. You, you become be. your brand, Bruce. You gotta be. Yeah, brucelenton.com if you're looking for more information. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, that is a wrap on Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. Please like, share, subscribe, comment. It's been great to see the growth of the podcast, but it's always great to have guests like Bruce being able to inspire people, not only in the health and wellness, but really in entrepreneurship and mentorship and leadership, which is something that affects each of us each and every day. Have a great one, everyone. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.